Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is part two of our conversation on the Church 2 movement with Xenia and Daisy. If you haven't listened to the first part already, I would recommend that you go back and listen to that first, because we're going to continue to build on that conversation. Without further ado, let's do this. Part of that, too, is the way that culture has, and even in the churches, reacted like to instances which have been brought to light, too. And we live in a time where, you know, cancel culture is a real thing, where it's like, oh, something has happened, like, you're, you're canceled, or, you're, you know, you're dis- disavowed, <laughs> you know, you are pretty much excommunicated. Like, restoration isn't even in the conversation when we start talking about this. It is almost like you have been discredited and that's it. And it's over. And unfortunately, this has happened both from the victim side and from the abuser side, where both are almost shunned. And it's, it's part of the, the, the way that things are dealt with today. Uh, and it happens in the church too. And how do we kind of move out of this? Like, you know, how can we find a better way? <laughs> And I also wonder, like, because it was like at a talk with Dave Fitch and he kind of entertained that a little bit. And he was saying how, like, for our churches, we often talk a lot about, like, you know, gender issues and stuff like that. But we never talk about the over-sexualized culture that we're in, right? And it's like, if you want to see change, but you're not willing to critically assess and engage with the, with the social constructs around us, then why why are we surprised that we're still being informed by our social constructs? Mm. Like you see media, you see television, you see all of the medias around us, like still in some, maybe not so subversive way, like still perpetuates a, a certain kind of storyline. Sure. I just want to add that the over-sexualization of women especially is also prevalent in the church and the purity culture because it is just about sex. Right. Right. And so we don't often think about it because we talk about abstinence or just like sex is bad, but it, the conversation is still focused on women as sexual beings. Right. That's a lot to think about too. How does that even translate to when we start to think about women in leadership? So I have a friend who is an associate pastor and she tells me she just, she, and she's, you know, reasonably attractive. And she knows that if she wears makeup on one day versus makeup not on another, on another day, people will make comments about her appearance. They'll just straight up say to her, you know, wow, you look good today. Or wow, you look terrible today. Oh, why are you wearing this t-shirt? Why aren't you wearing a dress? Men don't get these questions. That's true. Actually, I, I do. No, you do? <laughs> that's amazing. I never get that question. I dress like a slob all the time. <laughs> but that's totally part of culture. In fact, like one of like my big interests is movies and I love to watch like Oscars and stuff. Red carpet interviews. It's just like, hey, like you can ask the guy something about politics or about, you know, what was their kind of method in, in terms of making a movie. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a female celebrity and it's like, oh, can you tell us who you're wearing today? It's like, why is that even a question? <laughs> why is that even part of the interest of the masses in, in which we are living? in? <laughs> and so it's so ingrained. It's so ingrained <laughs> there. 
Well, and I think part of it is that the church doesn't know how to healthily talk about sex. Um, We talk about it still largely in terms of don't do it, especially with our young people. But have we ever talked about the beauty of sex? Have we talked about what sex was designed for? What does it offer in relationship with one another and with God? I mean, growing up in the Chinese church, we didn't talk about it. Also, my parents didn't tell me anything about it, except for give me a biology book. That's a different story. Um, Seems very clinical. <laughs> and so when we when we don't even address, we don't address that, we don't address gender. I'm going to say this, like egalitarianism or the, the mutualism isn't to say that men and women are the same. That's not it at all. Like, I think there are significant differences between men and women. But when we don't articulate those differences, when we don't talk about uh, ways in which we need one another, uh, the ways in which community, healthy community can be derived and created, uh, we actually do a huge disservice to the church. Mm. Uh, and it, and I think to some degree, it was very funny. We, I was talking with someone uh, earlier today about the Billy Graham rule, for example. And the Billy Graham rule is that like a man cannot be left alone with a woman in, in a closed space. There has to, if they're together at all, the door has to be open or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Which okay, sure. Uh, Mike Pence, the you know, he made yes. it, there was a big deal about it a couple of years ago because he won't even drive a woman home or something like that. But the thing is, is that my friend was saying, uh, you know, if you're tempted to have sex with a woman who's meeting with you in the room, the problem isn't that she's tempting you to sex; it's that you have a problem with desiring sex with this woman, and you should probably talk to HR, which I thought was hilarious. That is very truthful. (laughs) And what does that say in terms of what perpetuates in our culture and perhaps in our church leadership in regards to the dynamic between men and women? I mean, that says a lot, right? That says a lot. So as a woman, I was also, I was taught growing up, like, you have to dress a certain way. If you're going to be alone with a guy, you should make sure someone knows or there's a window. Um, Like, we, we were told to be afraid of men. In some ways, mm. not like afraid, afraid, but like be cautious. Because, Just in case. Yeah. And I right. got the, I got the talk like of, you know, if you're going to go on a date, like these are the things like make sure you watch your drink, you make sure you, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. men don't always get those same sorts of talks. Right. Um, but at the same time, now men are afraid to be with women. Swung the other way. There's that. Yeah. But I think now we've created this, this mutual fear as opposed to, okay, well, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. I think also, I guess from my personal background, we had in my church a sort of naturally gender segregated culture. Okay. So in worship services on Sundays, the girls would sit in one row and the boys would sit in a different row. Nobody dictated it. We just did that. Much of our subject matters is sort of separated by sure. Girls can learn about this and guys can learn about this. And it's very, it's very gender specific, which I think makes girls and boys at that age afraid of each other to begin with. And so getting older and coming from that sort of background, it makes it very difficult to navigate these sort of situations because we're just taught to be different from each other. And Mm. we can't really have discussions about this kind of thing because because of that gender segregation. Right. Man, I didn't even think about that. It's like almost at a young age, we're conditioned to live in a certain way. And that way has been completely informed by fear. <laughs> As the book goes, right? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus, yes, right? Exactly. So, yes. 
Is that a sci-fi book? I don't Maybe know. I need to read this book. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Don't read it. It's probably not worth the read. But here's the other thing, though. Like, as we talk about this, it's always like a one-on-one relationship. But what does that look like when you just don't look at it just as a one-on-one thing? You know, like, what, what does a team connection look like? What does serving together in more than just a one-on-one look like? Mm. And could that be a way of building into like a more lack of better word, a safe environment for everyone? Cause then like, like how do you, like if you, if you've grown up with this culture, how do you move out of it without, you know, facing your fear like head on? What are the mechanisms? Right. And, and unfortunately some of like the way that we look at things is like, look at mentorship. It's like one-on-one, right? You look at leadership is one, right? There's always a leader. But it's like, but if we shift and pivot, like, does that help create some space? It's a really interesting point you bring up because I wonder how much of it is wrapped up around trying to manage or control the situation or behavior versus actually allowing space to bring things to light to Christ to redeem and restore. Like, you know, a lot of the church two incidents that had happened, like, there were teams surrounding leaders. There were people that they were accountable to. They were people they were mentored by. And yet it's not about just having better safeguards, not to knock on Billy Graham's rule, right? But it's just like, it's not just about having better protective measures, right? I think there needs to be, in, in, in the gospel sense, a way for, for, these, for the darkness, the brokenness to be brought to light and to receive from the Holy Spirit, that redemption and that restoration in life. And maybe even like, especially as we're talking about in the, you know, the Asian context too, it's so hard to do that because shameful things are hard to bring out. And of course, we're talking the difference between like the whole like cultural perspective of what being transparent is versus actually truly vulnerable and, and sharing that which you are completely engulfed by in your shame. It's so difficult. I mean... I haven't seen very many good examples of how that can really be approached. And because a lot of these church two movements have ended up with, you know, a leader or pastor just being removed from ministry or fired or discredited. And unfortunately, all their, their legacy of their ministry and all the books they've written and all the things that they have ever taught on has been discredited. And that's part of the cancel culture already. But, you know, I have not seen a good way in which to really bring this out and to receive, you know, redemption. In. So I think there's merit and value in learning from what someone who has fallen from grace, but you learn from what they said, not learn from what they did. But the other thing too, is that I think in some respects, we talk a lot about how isolating church leadership is because of, the way that it's structured, there's someone always at the top. And once they're at the top, there's no accountability anymore mm. because they ha- the, the mechanisms of accountability don't often touch them, even though on paper they might. Uh, so I wonder if we actually need to reconsider a flatter structure. And, but then the other thing too about the leader, I think that it is right and appropriate that they aren't restored to their ministerial position because they've lost trust mm-hmm. and they've broken communal right. trust. Sure, And it's been clear that they have to submit to the discipline of the community. And I think that's what we don't often see, that a, 
a leader who falls from grace submits to that discipline. Sure. And I, so, so I think it really does come down to uh, the way that our churches have been structured. I think that the ways in which our churches are currently structured often create more nooks for dark things to hide in mm. just by virtue of, of the way power dynamics are. Right, right. I'm even thinking a little bit about what you said earlier, too, about the no-closed-door rule that you, you had mentioned. Like, what would happen if a leader did approach HR and said, hey, I am feeling very tempted to sleep with this woman right now? What would happen? Like, it's, is it a culture where it's still like, okay, well, you know, you need to be removed from ministry and everything. Like, I'm just wondering the scenario, how it would play out. See, but temptation isn't the same as sinning. Sure. I don't think at that point, if the pastor goes to say his pastor, and I'm using this particular gendered pronoun because it's often the the men who hold the power in the relationship. I think there's there's a room for saying, okay, well, in, in this case, let's set some boundaries. Let's you're going to agree not to meet with this woman alone anymore. Uh, someone is going to step in and counsel her through this process. It's not okay. You've you're tempted this way, so therefore you're evil. Yeah, you shouldn't do this anymore, right? Like we don't we don't do that to people. We say, okay, thank you for admitting that this is the temptation you struggle with. Let's walk with you through it. Because it's like it's the same way that you would pass to someone who is in an authority figure in an organization that's not Christian or Christian, whatever. Mm. Like this is the same way that you would pass to someone through that, right? Like that is still like you you wouldn't tell them like a CEO of a company who is lusting after one of their employees and say, oh, you know what? You should leave. You shouldn't be a CEO anymore because you're in a trusted position in a place of power. But it's like, well, then how do we, how do we walk through that? And then how do you find, like walk with them through the personal healing while creating that safeguard, right? Um, but with that said, I don't think many of our churches actually have spaces where we can actually come to, to be like, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. You know, like, yeah. Ideally, it was maybe the elder sport, but you know, in a in a Chinese church context, that may not be the place that you would go to, mm. right? So, where would you go? Who would you go to? Yeah, that's a very good question. I I'm pretty sure the uh, the four of us around the room would be like, uh, we don't know, <laughs> we don't know, because it's almost like there's another standard that's held for the pastor, yeah. and if that's the case. The pastor just continually deals with it on his own and kind of leads to really dark places. And the tough part about this is like, if a, a pastor was like, hey, I have this temptation. You know, I believe that I am lusting after this person. I am, you know, you, to use Jesus' words, I've committed d- adultery in my heart against this person mm-hmm. and I need help in this. What hope is there for the pastor? What hope is there for the leader? And you know, if this is brought to light, what does that mean? So how do we wisely discern and wrestle through it while bringing things out into the light so that, so that God can work through the midst of it? I think, okay, so one, I, I do want to say that pastors are held to a higher bar. Like I think they, because they have been appointed to shepherd the people of God, they do have a responsibility to that calling and to that role. And they, and the scriptures are clear about them being held to a higher standard, like false teachers mm-hmm. have a special place, <laughs> uh, you know? Yes. So, but at the same time, I think that 
the ways in which we've structured our church has kind of celebritized. I just made up a new word. Celebritized. Let's get that in Webster <laughs> um, dictionary. The, the pastor. Mm-hmm. And I think has isolated the pastor where the pastor is no longer part of the body, but in some ways is, has taken the place of Jesus in the body. Mm. And wow. so a danger indeed. And so um, I, I think it, when we say, okay, no, we're, we do hold this person to a higher standard because they are the person who is to lead us. Uh, but it's in conjunction with the fact that they submit to the, the authority of the community mm-hmm. and the discipline of the community. That when they sign, there's a, uh, there's a document that you sign that you say, like, you know, I'm going to... S- I will abide by these things like yeah, a covenant. Yeah, yeah. Like a co- a covenant. Thank you, covenant. Yeah. Church covenant. Church covenant. Um, it's, it's that the people of God say alongside the pastor, we will support you in your godly calling. It's not just you're going to be left alone to struggle by yourself. I think that's unreasonable. It reminds me of like this book that Eugene Peterson wrote about how like the church is like a bunch of sheep trying to pretend to be the shepherd. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're taking turns holding the staff. And I think in actuality, that is, that is what the church is. It's not just this one sheep is always holding the staff <laughs> but that we are indeed the priesthood of all believers in our unique giftings and callings within a local community but i would say too and this is not my plug for denominationalism but i wonder if some of the denominational structures couldn't be helpful for that because then you actually have an external space that is related to the church but not directly connected to the church which offers like an, another, not a safeguard, but like a, a, a place to kind of work through some of that. Hmm. Um, but I think a third space. Uh, no, that's no, not a third space. No coffee references. No. Okay. But just like you know, I think I think we need different spaces for people. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, certainly. I think that like a a pastor's public struggle is not going to be appropriate for their congregation. Yeah. But at the same time, like at you know, given where our current structures are, to report to the deacons or elders board is liable to be. Right. Like their jobs are on the line. Yeah. So I think, you know, as someone who comes from the Alliance, descended from the Presbyterians, you know, the Presbyterians <laughs> yes. have a great structure where you can go and, yeah, and talk this out, right? I think in a lot of ways, I wonder if like our stopgap measure in bringing the church back to her full glory is to implement like, Pastors who pastor pastors. That's a lot of the same word all at once. <laughs> get some bishops. Yes, exactly. Not popes, just bishops. As we're kind of wrapping up this episode, there's a few just last things we want to kind of touch base on. And it's just how do we respond? How can we respond wisely with discernment in Christ-like ways? And this covers kind of a, a few different kind of scenarios. And so one would be this. If an accusation does come forward, what would be the best way to respond to it? What would be the best way to not go to the extremes where on one side, everything that someone has accused a person is, is taken off as face value because there could be a danger of that. And you did mention earlier about there is a, like there have been small instances where there are false accusations. And the other side would be in which to just try to defend, you know, Daisy, you were talking about this a lot earlier too, is just try to like rationalize it through and to find a way to just be like justifying like, oh, like, like this couldn't be. And, but, but, you know, that's wrapped up around almost shaming the victim too. 
uh, unfortunately, at times. And so, what's the best way to respond and to be able to shepherd the person who is making an accusation and also the person who's being accused? I mean, there's so much wrapped up around this. How can we uh, be ministering and shepherding and also, in some way, letting this inform us of, of where we can go in terms of the dynamics and leadership? I'd like to give an example from my life. Yeah. Um, this is not in a church context. It is in a work context. So in, in a recent place of employment, I had a immediate supervisor be let go because there were many complaints from the women in our department mm-hmm. who um, said he was making inappropriate comments. He was misogynistic. He was uh, all, all sorts of things. Sure. Um, and I had never picked up on these things. I don't know if I was just oblivious or or if it's my own social conditioning that prevented me from seeing it. But I really liked this man, and I thought he was a great boss. And so when that happened, it was very sudden for me, and I had to really think about how to react. So my first reaction would be like, oh, he's gone. I'm going to miss him because I really liked him. And people would ask me how I felt about him leaving, and I would tell them that, yes, I did like him, but I think that if I go around saying that it's it's a shame he's gone and I'm going to miss him and I wish he hadn't been fired, like how does that invalidate the experiences of the women who I work alongside who had real experiences with this man that were negative? Right. Um, that basically says, you know, I don't care about your experiences. All I care about my my own feelings, right? And so in the long run, what I would respond with is if Removing this person from this situation makes our work environment a safe and more comfortable place for the people I work with, then it is a good thing. And it doesn't matter how I feel about it because that was it, it's not about me. It's about them and about that situation that happened. Mm. And I think alongside that, if you've ever journeyed with someone who survived sexual assault, uh, you it, it comes with a whole host of symptoms. Yeah. Like it, Absolutely. I think in especially Western media and in the Western narrative, we, we hold very strongly to, well, the facts are the facts are the facts. But anybody actually who have experienced uh, sexual violence will say, you know, they struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, with anxiety disorders, with depression. For sure. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot, some of that comes with significant memory loss. It comes with erratic behavior. It comes with a sense of loss of identity. And so uh, I think the first response should actually be to hear the survivor out, to say, okay, we hear you, we see you, you are not your trauma. And exactly what Daisy was saying, we want to be able to hear that story well. I think that when it comes to, yes, false allegations do happen, but they're very significantly low. But at the very least, we have to take the, the allegations seriously, mm-hmm. um, which me- does mean that we need to have mechanisms in place to that might involve the police and social workers, dependent on the situation. I think, too, that if this person has actually perpetuated abuse within this context, it is no longer appropriate for that person to belong to that community. Does he still belong to the community of the people of God? Yes. But it also means that we have to maybe say to this person, I think a different community will suggest this restorative community to you might be the more appropriate place for you in this time. Sure. And we should never demand that the survivor uh, forgive the abuser and never demand reconciliation. I think that that belongs to and should be taken 
ownership by the survivor. We can pastor them through it and walk with them through it. But I think because of the way that trauma influences and reshapes someone, um, the first act is to recall them to the goodness of God and that the father grieves with them and loves them and that the thing that they've experienced does not define their story or their life. And I think like also as we're talking about this, I think because it's so sensitive and heavy, we should not overexpose stuff like that because especially in our culture today where it's like like the social media craze culture that's so viral and so like everybody has an opinion and a voice mm-hmm. to something and the more that people are talking about it i don't actually think it's healthy for people to actually work through the healing and the and, and the rebuilding of kind of what god's doing in their lives you know and to actually address with the pain address um the, the sins that they've engaged with, like then it just becomes this greater discussion that has nothing to do with the people who are actually impacted and involved. And so how do we like, no way not let that. It's like, I, I think even with these many big pastors, like a lot of people, like they're not really involved. It's not their thing. Although, yeah, we're part of the larger community, but it's just like all the fueling conversations outside isn't helpful. So I I think maybe that's my opinion, but I just think like in some cases, just let it be more of a localized wrestling and, and engaging and dealing with that, that happening. Hmm. Yeah. I think in a community where women are celebrated and uh, where we're actually articulating exp- like what we understand as God's, purposes for the world and articulating sex and gender and community in light of that mission, we might actually be able to sort out a more uh, holistic understanding of relationship between the genders. Right. I think that when we begin to say that these behaviors of sexual harassment should never have been appropriate in the church and should no longer be appropriate in the church— to say that sexual violence is not should not belong in the church and articulate the reasons for that, why that is true, we begin to bring th- and to bring things into light. We'll end up creating a more healthy community. It's pretty crazy, almost that it has to be explicitly said in that way. <laughs> I'm just thinking like that. Maybe it's so hard to kind of believe that some of these instances have happened is because maybe we have all had a sense of like oh, church is safe and, you know, ministry leaders are there to, you know, take care of us. But maybe because of a host of factors that they're dealing with all their stuff and it's come out in different ways that it's led to, you know, these uh, very tragic circumstances happening. And I hope that we would all have the courage to be able to name it, that we'd all be saying that maybe we don't know how we can appropriately deal with this because it's such a big issue that is influenced by so many factors and that it needs to be unpacked and deconstructed and and allowed for God to be able to speak into it and for us to listen to the ways in which God is revealing himself and his healing and restoration and his hope in the midst of it. 
And, and even as we are deconstructing this, like I think we need to be on the process of reconstructing this too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what does it look like for it to be like really just men and women being friends and not having to be worried about like all, all the fears and, and all of that. Like, and, and I think we also need to work through reconstruct, reimagine whatever, whatever words that we like to use so that we can actually model a way forward. Sure. I think the first thing that we need to do as a church is to lament and to grieve Yeah, that this is the state of our church and to say to the yeah. Lord, like, God, have mercy on us. Mm. That's going to be our final word for us today because that's what we need. <laughs> and, you know, we appreciate you guys joining us on this conversation, this two-part conversation. And we would love to know what you think and, uh, and how you are wrestling through this. And whether you agree or disagree, we'd love to dialogue with you on this because there's no easy answers. And so let's be able to figure this out together. If you'd like to reach out to us or connect with us, you can connect with us on email or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to review and subscribe to our podcast so that we can be able to continue to join in this conversation together. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast. And on behalf of Daisy, Xenia, and Bernard, we hope to see you next time.